My name is Josh. I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. Perry asked me to introduce him, or I was picked or something. And I said yes, until I got here. But um, all day long I was nervous about what I'm going to say, but I'm not the one speaking. You know, uh, I met Perry a little over a year ago. He started coming to my home group at Conley's. I'm from Delaware. And uh, he was just laid back. You know, he didn't say too much in the beginning. I guess he was a little nervous, you know, being around a bunch of Delawareans. But um, he started opening up, and I like, really liked what he had to say. Um, so I started talking to him, and I asked him for his email address. Boy, that was a mistake. <laughs> that's just a joke. But... Uh, we started emailing each other, and then I went on this retreat, and uh, spiritual retreat with him. And uh, he kind of told, told me that he would temporarily be my sponsor. At, the, at this time, I was spiritually and emotional bankrupt. There's no doubt about it. Perry has helped me tremendously. And I... I I can't express in words what he has helped me with and how he's helped me, you know, from my heart. Um, he has a neat way of getting my attention. Last Sunday, I was going down the road, and I was eating a sub. My phone rings. I looked at it, and it's Perry, so I was driving with my knee, and all of a sudden, I had a busted mirror hanging off my truck where I done hit a mailbox. But, um... I didn't have a very few kind words to say to him, even though it wasn't his fault. So, uh, with that, I'm just going to introduce Perry. Hi, my name is Perry, and I'm chemically dependent. And I'm a member of the um, New Life Group. I think that's the name of it. Uh, at, at Connolly Church on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. We had Alexis there just a couple weeks ago for our group anniversary. Um, I'm nervous. Um, thanks, Josh. Um, Josh is one of many people since moving to Delaware that has made the transition of moving again um, easier um, what I'm struck by I guess I want to say this right off the bat is um, the, the whole idea of the unity of this fellowship of Chemical Dependence Anonymous and, and I very much love this program I am in other fellowships I started out in other fellowships um, because I got in the program before CDA had started but um, what I'm amazed by is having gone to meetings in Maryland and Montgomery County and PG County and, and a little bit in, in the Annapolis area and then now here in Delaware for the last year. What I'm struck by, particularly because I, I travel a lot, and, um, and by traveling um, I go to AA meetings like in California and Florida, Louisiana, different places like that, and um, how the, the idea that 
that invisible sign that they say that's in, um, in AA, but I believe it's in, in CDA, and that's that sign that says, there's no strangers here, only friends we haven't met. And so much so that, I, that I very quickly and rapidly, uh, CDA and Delaware has embraced me, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And, and also what helped, too, was having both John E. and John T. down before, and that, that certainly made it easier. Um, I've always wanted to live at the beach, and I was a single parent for many years and um, wanted the Montgomery County school system for my son, who had uh, a lot of issues and needed that school system to help him. So um, um, now that he's going to college in Southern Maryland, um, actually he goes to school where I went to school. I talked to him the other night, and... um, and it just finally gave me the freedom once he was kind of more on his own to, to live at the beach. Now, those who know me um, know that um, um, in our CDA Big Book, we have a chapter called Fun and Recovery. And you'll see my name in there a few times. And, um, and be, because I got sober young, it just, um, it's just been my way of life, basically, um, to have fun. To have fun and recovery. Sterling's smiling at me. It's, uh, it is about having fun in uh, recovery. Um, last night, I um, spoke in a place that I got sober at. Not specifically that place, but uh, CDA a few months ago took on a responsibility to uh, SCI, which is Sussex uh, Correctional Institute. And we take a meeting in there. We take a couple meetings in there. We take a meeting to a boot camp type thing and we take a meeting to a thing called the key program which is like a second genesis but in prison it's a second genesis in prison the guys do a minimum of a year there it was really a trip to be there last night um there's 130 guys anybody that's seen oz that on hbo it's that kind of a cell block you're right there in the cell block um and it was so powerful for me because 23 years ago that's where i got sober in a prison setting. And uh, the gratitude to to one, and I said this to the guys too, I get to leave. I get to walk out. And I'm so grateful because of 12-step recovery and and this process of uh, the 12 steps that we have as a recovery program that I've been able to get out of prison and stay out of prison. And not just the physical prison. Certainly the prison of addiction. I've been real nervous about like trying to be funny, and, and that ain't going to happen tonight. Uh, it's going to be a serious talk, uh, it appears. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I was less nervous last night than I am tonight, and I think that's because I know most of you here, because um, uh, last night I didn't know any of the guys there. And, and doing that last night, too... Um, one of the big messages that I gave them, which was given to me, was, if I can do it, you can do it. Um, when I was in prison, I went to a number of different prisons and eventually ended up in Southern Maryland. And I went there because there was ex-cons and Alcoholics Anonymous that were bringing meetings there. And for me, that was real important. That was real, real important to have people who had been where I'd been. I mean, there were some outside people who had never been in prison, and, and their skid row was their state of mind. But to have some ex-cons that had been down the same path like that, that, that was very important for me. 
And so I shared that la- last night. And, um, and what was so cool was 23 years later, what it was was the guy, I was like saying, if I can do it, you can do it. And that, as one AA told me a long time ago, in a meeting, it's sort of like it lights your candle of hope that if you can recover, I can recover. Um, I'd like to say, um, I guess basically my story, I'll, I'll start off by saying I was born like most people. Uh, and um, I come from a small family. There's eight kids. And um, I'm the oldest. And um, my parents are actually going to hear this tape. Um, so I was wondering just how much to uh, share. They're right now just leaving the, the CDA meeting in Daytona Beach that they started almost a year ago. And if you're ever in Daytona Beach, look them up. Um, we have a CDA meeting here on Friday nights. I've been to it about six or seven times. I'll be to it. I'll be there next week, actually. I'm there next Friday night. And um, um, so I'm not going to tell their story. Um, but I will say... They, they planted seeds, and they, when Kevin was talking about child care, I, I, I went to child care at meetings. Uh, my parents came in AA at 10 years old, and I went to some child care AA meetings. And my old sponsor used to call me an alabrat instead of an alateen. She used to call me an alabrat. Uh, I went to alateen for seven years until I was asked to leave. I was asked to leave because I was smoking pot during secretary's reports. And so was my sister and my brother and uh, a couple other kids. And um, the AA people didn't like that. I don't know why, but they didn't like that. That was over in Chevrolet at the fellowship group, actually. And uh, what was cool was to be able to go back many years later, 10 years later, and speak there at a meeting and share that story that I'd been in Alateen and, and been asked to leave that meeting. Um, my parents' uh, alcoholism, I, I like to mention this, because alcoholism, drug addiction, it's a family disease. It's very much a family disease. It affects all of us and in a family. And if you don't think it does, um, I, I, you're, um, you maybe need to talk to your sponsor if you don't think it does, because um, it does. I really believe that. I also I tend to believe that ke- chemical dependency, alcoholism, Drug addiction. It's all. I, I tend to believe it's. It's. There's a, a, a genetic predisposition. I tend to believe that. I've had the opportunity to go to school after I got clean and sober and, and study, and actually become a certified addiction counselor. And in doing that, uh, I've read a lot of the research. I read a lot, and and I tend to believe from what I read plus what I observe in my own family as well as many other families that it tends to run in families, and. Um, and it certainly did in mine. But then my sister did an intervention. I mean, we all come in here from some kind of intervention. Now, I'm always amazed by the idea when I talk to people who have never been in recovery. Like, how does somebody stop? Uh, and, and I'm amazed by people who are still in their active addiction, family members and others. And the thing is, um, unless there's a reason to stop, why stop? Nobody, I mean, if we're going to be accountable, I mean, there's all that classic enabling that's, you know, strong aspects of, of our addiction and, our, and the family disease of it. So 
in my family, my nine-year-old my sister Julie was nine at the time. She did an intervention, and these were her words that she um, had said to my mom, based on what my mom has said. She said, Mom, everyone in the neighborhood's calling you and Dad drunks and calling our family white trash. Can't you do anything like go into AA like Uncle Joe? Now, that was said from a nine-year-old's voice. My mother, this was the day after Thanksgiving in 1967, uh, after another bad episode of their drinking. Uh, my youngest brother at the time, the seventh child, was in a foster home. He had been put in front of a church a month before in a basket. My mom had left a note telling him to take him, and then went on, a, on another weekend uh, disappearing drunk thing. And um, my mom called AA. And she talked to a lady who, whose daughter ended up becoming my Alateen sponsor. Um, and she talked to the woman and Alice. And um, she, my mom was too drunk and hung over to go to a meeting that night. But the next night, on November the 2nd, uh, her and my dad both went to their first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And they're, st and they're still sober. She did have a one-year relapse, uh, a relapse a year later. She, went, she, went, she found some other people that had relapsed, and she went out with them. And, and uh, Alateen really helped me during that, and that's Alateen's sponsor when my mom had her two-week relapse. But really, our family became a program of recovery. And, and a few years later, my dad ended up 12-stepping his dad, and I went along. I went along to my grandfather's detox 12-step call. I was like 15, 16 years old. And um, he ended up getting a couple years of sobriety before he died. He did die drunk, but, be, but for several years before that, though, he had sobriety and went to AA meetings in Prince George's County. Um, and my youngest son has been in the program, so I'm really here to say I'm part of four generations of 12-step recovery programming. And I say that only to say that this, as, as much as it's a family disease, it's a recovery process, family process, too. And, um, and so I, I guess I'm saying that, too, maybe to give you some hope. If you got active alcoholics, either a generation up or down or with you or, or, or on your sides, too. Certainly some of you know my, some of my siblings, and they've been in and out in the rooms as well. Um, because I had all that Alateen and AA, um, I went to a lot of these kind of speakers' meetings, and, and I remember I'd like to go because they, some of the speakers were funny, and some of and they had cake there, and they had girls there, and that's why I went to Alateen because of the girls, because of the the cookies, the donuts, and the wine punch. I did. Um, that's why I went. I didn't really listen. I think if I listen, maybe I wouldn't be standing here right now. Um, I think it goes more than that. But I, um, it planted seeds for me. I always liked that idea. You can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink it. But you can make him thirsty. And eventually I got thirsty for recovery. And it was seeds that, that germinated later on. And later on, too, I remember kind of blowing my mom off by saying, when I get as bad as you and Dad, I know where to go. I was really trying to tell her where to go, but I was really, but um, it was true. And my son has basically said the same thing to me, too. It's funny how that goes around. Um, in my, uh, and I, I'm leaning in to say, you think after going to Alateen, and, and some of you are parents, 
and have children and you certainly don't want them to become alcoholics. You don't want them to end up in this fellowship. And certainly my parents did not wish that and yet only to find out, you know, and, and go through a process of, of a number of their children either needing to be in the program and, um, and all the heartache and pain that goes with that. And, I, and then years later I got to go through that process with my son and his problems too to, uh, to go through all that as well. I was thinking about that uh, driving today, how last night I spent about an hour and a half talking to my stepfather on the phone, making arrangements to go down there next week. And um, we talked for an hour and a half. Uh, some about my mom. She's not doing so good. That's why I'm partly going down there. We talked about CDA and about being doing this right now and about the meeting he's doing. And we talked about some spiritual things that he's very active in his church. And um, we talked about golf. And we did that for an hour and a half. Now what's amazing, and we usually have these hour or two hour conversations now. It's amazing. I was flashing back when I was uh, growing up. I was very afraid of this guy. I was very afraid of him. And then it got to a point in, in my active addiction where my mom was in the hospital and my dad wanted me to go see her and uh, it was like about a 45 minute drive and our relationship had deteriorated so bad that my dad said you either go see your mom with me right now or you're kicked out of the house I was 17 years old I'd just been drinking and drugging about a year or two at that point and I'd just gotten out of the army I was only in, I was in the army for just a few months at 17 and out and um I chose to be homeless because it was so bad that I did not want to spend that 45-minute car ride to go see my mom and then the 45-minute ride back. It had gotten so tense and negative that I chose to sleep in friends' cars and to um, um, sleep in the woods and basements and and be homeless Um, because that's how bad it got between him and me. And then years later, in recovery, doing my ninth step with him was profound, profound. Where I got, I told him that I loved him. My sponsor said when I go to do my amends, the first thing I should say is I love you. I just did my fifth step. And it just profoundly changed our relationship. I could never make eye contact with this man up till then. And I was about 22, 23 years old when I did that ninth step. And uh, it just radically changed everything into where it is now. It's just, it's amazing. It's just, it's, it's just incredible. Um, the relationship that continues to evolve. It, it, it continues to evolve. Even I got a birthday card uh, about a month ago. I turned 44, and um, um, I got a birthday card from my mom. And, and you know, like most moms and dads, usually just the mom signs it and puts the dad's name or whatever. I, if you're like most families, I guess that's most families are like that. Well, he signed. He wrote some things in there, and it really touched me and, and got me really teary. That um, I very much will treasure that birthday card for for, for the rest of my life. That um, that he's come a long way, and, and and the ability to communicate the love that we have and respect and pride and all that good stuff, and joy. Um, again, it's a process. It's not an event. Got to reiterate that too. Um, I could not have imagined for those who are new here, like in your first couple months, in your first year, 
the, the idea that um, you could have these rebuilt relationships. And I'm here to say recovery can give you that and has and will give you that if you want it. I love in CDA here in Delaware, I can't remember if you guys do it much in, in Maryland, is um, we read the AA's promises at the end of the meeting. All CDA meetings in Delaware do that. And, and actually the one in Daytona Beach does that too. And they, we read the promises at the end of the meeting. And I just am so nurtured, comforted, and, um, and almost held by this sort of the spiritual energy that those promises offer us. And they offer those if we work the first nine steps. That's when they're introduced to us. And just what a, a, a treat and a joy that those promises have been in my life. And, and as well as I've witnessed in other people's lives in recovery. And many of you here in the rooms that, that I know and I'm close to, I've seen those promises in your life as well. And it's such a treat to, to be part of that whole process of that. Um, I'm kind of bouncing around here. Um, I'll say my drinking and drugging lasted active addiction. I started at 16, and it was over at 21. 20, 21. I had my last drink at 20. I had my last marijuana maintenance at 21. Um, actually, um, next week, May 1st, uh, will be 23 years the last time I spoke PCP, KW, for those PG County people that know it that way. Okay, I love PCP. That was one of my drugs of choice. Um, I actually, when I was in prison, I, was, um, I became um, editor of a jail newspaper there. We called it the Centennial Slammer. It was called the Centennial Slammer. And um, I used to write some stuff in there. And um, some of you know I, I aspire to write. And um, I um, wrote a poem. It was one of my first poems. Sometimes I share this at meetings, and it, and it seems appropriate here. One of the first poems I consciously know that I wrote as an adult... I was, had been in prison about a year and a half or so, and the poem was called KW. And, and the poem goes, There's a high known as killer weed, but you can call it angel dust green or PCP. The high hits you as fast as a train, but if you keep smoking it, it's going to burn out your brain. And if you keep making those KW sales, all you're going to do is wind up in jail. And if you think this is all a big joke, then die as you take your last tote. That's what I wrote, and I was still smoking it. <laughs> so, I was 19 years old. Um, when I was 16, right before I started to, um, right before I started to um, to get high. Um, I was in PG County. I was part of that court order busing where you got bus to schools to bus white kids to black schools and black kids to white schools. And they're just finally ending that now, here 25 years later, the social engineering that some would say worked and so a lot of people would say it didn't. Um, and I was caught up in that. And I've been very involved in sports. And I, what was, I was thinking about this recently. It was so weird. They bust us in the middle of the school year. And I had gone to Bladensburg High School and I was like, we had a really good basketball team that year in 72. And I really remember being really into that because basketball was my first love. And, and so in January, they bust us to Fairmont Heights. And then I'm supposed to cheer for that school's basketball team. And, and there was a lot of conflict there. And a lot of us didn't do very well with it. And um, 
not to say that was the reason of why I went a different way, but up until then, I was college bound. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to go. I hoped to have gotten a baseball scholarship or something. Um, I was teaching karate by then, so I was. I had some aspirations to do more with that, and I worked part time jobs. You know, also at PG Hospital in Chevrolet. You know how they have those candy stripers? Well, I was. There's a male version of that. I don't know if anybody knows that. There's a male version of a candy stripe. They're called blue coats, and I was a blue coat. Um, and I used to think I was a blue coat because they gave you free food when you worked a shift there. But I did that, and I wonder sometimes, like, why was I so caretaking of being the oldest of eight kids and doing babysitting and, and um, doing that? Uh, and that was the summer before I started using of why I was a, a, um, a candy striper male, candy striper. Who knows? But, um, but that just says something about the way my life looked. And I worked part-time jobs. I worked the McDonald's and the restaurants. They had a Ponderosa restaurant. I worked there, different things like that. I was always entrepreneurial. I did a lot of little things. And those that know me now, I've been working for myself for 10 years in the same business, and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. But, I mean, those traits were already with me as a teenager, pre-adolescent, actually. Um, so that was my life. And then I smoked pot for the first time by myself. Matter of fact, my brother Jerry, who a lot of you know, I stole a joint from him. Uh, he had already been smoking pot. And I went back in the woods and smoked it by myself. Now, I said this to, to the guys last night at the prison. I don't meet that many people that the first time they did drugs, they did alone. And right away, and I, and I really believe there, there's something wrong there, that peer pressure is one of the biggest influences the first time people use. And I don't have that to point to. I totally approached it as a way to feel the effects of it and see what happens. And, and what happened was nothing happened, other than I got paranoid. But that was it. Um, but then a couple weeks later, I got around some guys, and you guys know these guys too if you grew up in PG County or... Baltimore or Annapolis, I guess, too, uh, was these guys are called greasers uh, or rednecks or grits. And um, I had grown up around these guys. A lot of these guys ended up, it was kind of like training ground before they became bikers. A lot of those guys later, became, they joined the outlaw clubs. And these greaser guys, if you ask a lot of bikers, a lot of them, for the ones I asked, they, a lot of them were greasers. It was sort of a training ground, I guess, or boot camp to that. And uh, some people say Alateen was boot camp for AA. Also, I got to throw that in there. Um, I got around these greasers. I grown up with them, knew them from school and, and things and neighborhood. Um, one of them I still sponsor today. Ten years we've been we've 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 been friends since third grade, and he was there that night. And um, I sm I drank three or four beers that night, maybe five beers, and I also smoked some PCP powdered marijuana with a trace of opium, I'm told later. The guy that we copped this dope from was uh, a chemist's son. And um, I finally felt the effects of alcohol and drugs for the first time, my first high. And I always say this, it was the best feeling I had ever felt in my whole life. Actually, it was the second best feeling I ever felt in my whole life. And... Um, I got a bigger laugh in prison last night. With that. I wonder why. They, uh, I did. I get, they really roared on that. But um, 
It was, it was an awesome feeling. And I told that, and I'll say this, I believe, for me, I became psychologically addicted. And I like what Brother Alexis always says, we drank or drug to change the way we feel. And I discovered that time that, I, that if I ingested alcohol with other drugs, it would change the way I felt. And I believe I psychologically was addicted right from there. And I partied and had a lot of fun through that summer of 11th grade, uh, no, 10th grade into 11th grade over the summer because that was in the spring. Now, as I said, I was into sports, and my idols were like um, sports figures, the Olympic guys that were in the Olympics because I was in track and field for a while and basketball and all that. And, and believe it or not, to my golf buddies, I used to play golf back then. You wouldn't know that when you see my scores, but I've been playing longer than most of these guys, and yet my scores reflect like I haven't. Um, but, um, I mean, I was in a lot of sports, and those were my kind of f- figures or role models. Six months later from partying, going into the 11th grade and thinking I was going to go to college and being on the college track of study, I ended up um, stopped going to school. And I became a greaser. I had the leather jacket and I had wore the, well, I already wore Chuck Taylors, but the sweat socks and, and all the other clothes that go with that. And... Then my, my idols became bikers and the mafia and uh, criminals, and that's became my role models. You know, and I was saying this to the prison last night, I also had a lot of issues with stealing, and, um, and I see today, I was thinking about this today too, my anger. You know, I, I did a lot of vandalism at schools and things, and when I was in, uh, in these gangs, I became a, a gang member, and... Um, and we did crimes together as a group. And where I used to be proud of, like sports accomplishments and things like that, now what I was proud of was how much alcohol, if I could drink a case of beer on a Friday night, that was something to be proud of and not throw up. Or to smoke a whole ounce of pot over a weekend or, or a tin of green that was good and um, stuff like that. Or how much money I could steal. Because if you stole the most money, then you buy more drugs and alcohol. And there was like a badge of um, honor in, um, in how good you were as a thief and as a, dr- and as a person that drank and drugged. Um, and that was my lifestyle for a couple years. When um, you steal long enough, you get caught. We know that. And I used to think I couldn't get caught and um, I used to do a lot of breaking and enterings of houses. And when I did with these guys, we'd steal guns, any alcohol, any drugs, and money, coin collections. We didn't deal with stereos and TVs and stuff like that. We just wanted quick stuff. And we had this gun we couldn't sell. Normally, we'd get guns, we'd sell them as soon as we got them. Um, but we had this gun we couldn't sell. And we also used to do, we used to rob 7-Elevens and uh, gas stations and fast food places without I won't go into detail, I didn't do it last night either at the prison, but there was ways you could steal from those places and not get caught um, but with this gun we thought well let's do the classic stick up so first of all I heard when I was in prison white boys shouldn't do stick ups that's a, that's a black guy's thing that's not a, 
white guys don't do st- they don't there's not many successful white armed robbers and ask any black guy and he will tell you that uh, especially any guy that's in prison and um, and we did a stick up up in Beltsville across the street from my Alateen home group um, actually right there at Powder Mill Road in Route 1 at St. John's they've moved that meeting now but at Powder Mill Road right next to it used to be an X-rated movie theater nobody knows that right that drive-in movie theater it was but nobody will own that right but uh but right next to there was a gas station. I think the price club's there now or something. And we got $8. There was a drop safe. They had these drop safes. This was on my mother's birthday on December 10th, 1975. And we left there and some volunteer firemen followed us in a high-speed chase. We were at a 65 Lincoln Continental, my buddy had. So we didn't even do it in a stolen car. Um, and, and, and as this was happening, I thought I was watching this on TV. Like back then, what was real popular was that show, Scarcity and Hutch. And, and it felt like that. And I'm in it. And, and we're shooting. They're hanging out the window shooting this gun. And the guy's still following us. So we stop the car. And my buddy, my best friend, Mike, gets out and shoots the rest of the gun. And, and the guy stops because his windshield just got shot out. And then we go on further. We're going through those back roads in Greenbelt that take you over to Kenilworth Avenue, Sunnybrook, I think, and that way. And we're trying to get to Kenilworth Avenue and the Beltway over there. And there's a roadblock waiting for us. Well, before the roadblock, we get a flat tire. And we're riding on the other shoulder of the road. And we come up to those apartments there at Kenilworth and the Beltway. And I think there's state police there or something. And we get out and run, me and my brother, my brother Jerry's one of his close friends. He was AWOL Marine. And we get out and run. My buddy, my best friend stays and um, tells them our names. And, um, and um, my life was to change forever. I got indicted for that armed robbery. It was a 15-count indictment a month later. And I was facing 137 years. I had a $25,000 bond. I was 18 years old. I'd been drinking and drugging. Not even three years yet. And I went to Upper Marlboro. And I had knew what Upper Marlboro was like from all my buddies. They'd all been there. I hadn't been there yet. But now I was there in Upper Marlboro. I, I first went to an area called uh, D Down Left, DL, uh, Down Left. And it was where if you had serious crimes, that's where you were at. So my cell partner was a pretrial murderer, and, and it was rapists and murderers were, and, and a few armed robbers, but they weren't white. They were, um, um, and... Um, I, rat, I, I was like stunned that my life had taken this turn. Um, and yet I wasn't stunned enough that I still got high in there. I'd have bug spray. We'd make jailhouse wine, that kind of stuff. And I kept saying, I better change my life. I better change my life. And um, eventually I convinced my mom after four and a half months to get me out on bond. The night I got out on bond, my buddy Billy uh, came by with some pot and, and got me high and... Um, and for the next three months, I was high and drunk every day. knowing. See, I knew what was going to happen with my sentence was I was going to plead guilty, plead bargain, and I did. They dropped all the charges but one, and then I was only facing 20 years, and of which I got eight years. So I got eight years for that $8 on robbery. And as I said to the guys last night, and as I'll say to you right now, that prison saved my life, along with Alcoholics Anonymous. 
by that those two things together saved my life. Literally. I know it. When I was about to go back and get my eight-year sentence, um, some of you also know that know me. I, I had a lot of tattoos, and um, I had love tattooed on my fist. And I had used this do-it-yourself tattoo removal and took the V off, and it hurt so bad, and it took so long, and it was all nasty. And So then I was walking around with L-O-E on my fist. On my, I already had an E there. And then, I was, and then I had hate on my fist. And I had that removed about seven or eight years ago now with lasers. But um, that word hate on my knuckles was a statement to the world. But more than that, it was a statement to me about how I had hated myself. And I remember right after I did that, uh, a few days before my eight-year sentence was to begin, I um, trashed a bunch of things like trophies and sports stuff and karate stuff. And some of you also know I'm into photography, and I had a lot of photography stuff from some stuff I had done, and, and I threw it all away. My mom actually retrieved some of that. Interesting how moms do that for us. And um, But that's how I felt. I had thrown away my life. Here I was getting ready. I should have been going away to my first, no, second year of college. And instead I was getting ready to go away to serve an eight-year sentence to the Department of Corrections. And I did. And I went there. And I remember having a little bit of an alcohol withdrawal the first night. It's interesting. When you're a teenager, because I was 18 years old, 19 years old, we can become physically addicted quicker. I mean, from going to counseling school, I found that out, that teenagers and, and, and women, too, can get physically addicted quicker. And I, I believe I went through some alcohol withdrawal uh, at 19 years old in, in D2 in Upper Marlboro, my, the, the first night of my sentence. Um, I began doing time in prison, and very quickly um, I did that for a couple years, did that jail newspaper thing. I got my high school diploma in prison, uh, got the GED, started taking some independent college study. And I was doing all this good stuff, but the priorities and the motives were this. One, it would help me get out of prison, because those who've been in prison know the only way you get out is you program. I said that last night and everybody laughed when I said about how, you know, you guys aren't here to program, because you are. When you're in prison, that's the only way you get out is you got a program. And so my programming was these good things. The second reason was that when you did these things, you had better opportunities to drink and drug because I became a trustee. And when you were a trustee, you got access to alcohol and drugs easier. And I did. And there was times when I was smoking pot every day and drinking and doing other stuff. And, um, and I did that. And, and, that, and then the third reason I did these things was maybe this is good for me. Maybe this will help my life. So it was all distorted. Well, eventually, I was in Upper Marlboro a long time because the state system was so overcrowded. And eventually, I got to Baltimore to the penitentiary and then up to Hagerstown at MCTC, Maryland Correctional Training Center. My youngest brother is there right now, uh, my, who was my uh, parents' AA baby. They were sober three years when they had their last child, and he's now doing time there. And we communicate. But that's where I was at. And at my second AA meeting, I had to pay a carton of cigarettes to go to my first AA meeting there. And I had to do that because I was going up for parole, and I needed to, and it was like another good thing for the parole board. Go to AA. Well, at that meeting, I was standing, and you hear a lot of people have heard me say this. My moment of truth was at that AA meeting. It was in February of 1978, 
And a guy asked, was I going to drink when I got on the streets? And I said, I'm going to drink. I'm going to drink sociably. I said this is an AA meeting. I'm going to drink sociably. And then he said, had I ever drank sociably before? That was my moment of truth because I've always said alcoholics only lie when they move their lips. Drug addicts only lie when they move their lips. Up until then, I believed that I was a social drinker. I don't know where I got that. Just total fantasy. Because that's what I had. I had this picture in my mind and I can remember this so clear as day as I tell you this story now, 23 years later, that I was with this attractive girl drinking some wine, probably Wild Irish Rose. Um, my old sponsor always says, Wild Irish Rose is the only wine that's never seen a grape. It's all chemicals. It doesn't make, he says, it doesn't make you drunk, it just makes you stupid. And um, I liked Wild Irish Rose, or Ripple, or TJ Swan, or Moon's Farm, or any of those. And with some pot, actually at Greenbelt Lake, with a picnic basket and a blanket, and, and when he said, I have her ever drank sociably, this picture of partying that way, this moment of truth was that wasn't reality. Reality was, one, she wouldn't have been an attractive girl. Uh, two, I would have drank all the wine and thrown up or passed out. or I would have got in a fight with her probably. She would have thrown me in the water or I would have thrown in the water. And the reality was I didn't social drink. I also had this hang-up, too. I was too young. See, Young people weren't in AA back then. And um, I heard lots of World War II battleship stories in AA. <laughs> a lot. My parents came in AA in 33, and that was young. 33 was young in the 60s coming into AA. And here this was the late 70s. And I got something, though. And that was, if alcohol causes problems, then alcohol is the problem. Simply said, I never got... I didn't lose good cars, good jobs, houses, wives, th things like that. To lose, I didn't lose those things because of my drinking or drugging. And the reality was I never got those things to then lose them. That as young people in, in addiction, we get sicker quicker. And so I never got those things to, to gain to lose. So I went back to my cell that night with a pamphlet called A Memo to an Inmate Alcoholic. I still got the pamphlet. I just saw it about a year ago. And it had 20 questions, similar to the kind of questions we asked about our addiction. And I answered four. It's interesting because 20-some years later, when I looked at that last year, I could honestly answer 17. But back then, I answered four. But four was enough. Four was enough. Because those four questions opened me up to realize that I had a problem with alcohol. And my last drink had been a few weeks before. It was some jailhouse wine. It didn't ferment long enough, so I was really pissed off that it didn't ferment. And, and so that was my last drink. Not very memorable. Housing Unit 5 in Hagerstown. Um, I went up for parole, and they gave me a year cell. Before I went up for parole, I said the serenity prayer 50 times, and they gave me a year set off, and I thought, that serenity prayer doesn't work very good. Uh, and um, I got transferred through the system. And, and as I mentioned, in May 1st, I was in Jessup. I'd been smoking PCP for a week straight at Jessup at the main camp. And then I got transferred to Southern Maryland Correctional Camp. And that's where recovery really, really began for me. Um, there was no CDA. There was two NA meetings in D.C. at the Vanada program at the VA hospital. And there was a couple guys from southern PG County who went there. 
and they were going to AA, and they were heroin addicts and did other drugs, and they were coming down to Southern Maryland occasionally to the prison. And um, they were saying, because see, I stopped drinking, but I could still smoke pot. And people in AA were saying, yeah, you can still smoke pot. Some people were saying that. And other people were saying, no, you can't, especially these guys that went to the NA, saying, you can't smoke pot. But I was conflicted, of course. And, uh, um, but what happened was um, I, um, my sister Julie, uh, I, well, first of all, I, I made a commitment to, to get sober. Uh, my sponsor finally said, they convinced me that it was a solid form of alcohol. That was the way of, in AA of looking at it like that. That was a drug abuser. And um, when that happened, I became open to this process of recovery. But in the process, what happened too, though, my sister Julie, that had helped my mom get in AA and really radically change our family, um, I was, she was coming to see me one night, and instead she couldn't make it and I ended up going to a meeting, and my last conversation with her was a very kind of a teary conversation on the phone. And the next day, my sponsor came to tell me that she had shot herself that night and, and died and devastated me. And so my sponsor came with that news. And um, they took me to an AA meeting that night in Waldorf. Because, see, I was in minimum security, so I could go to outside meetings, and I was on work release. And... Um, I remember crying the whole meeting, and they, they led the meeting on acceptance. I'll always remember that. And for a bunch of meetings after that, I cried a lot. And they just really loved me. I always say, hey, love me way, way before I could love myself. And, um, and then a few months later, one of my buddies, uh, his name was Cat Creek Slim, um, Richard, and me were really good buddies. And he, his brother died, who I also had been in prison with, John. And he had been in the meetings, and he had got killed in a drunk driving thing. And here it was, a couple months after I was grieving my sister's death, I was here to give him an opportunity to help my buddy grieve his brother's death as well. And um, I went back to smoking pot again for two more months. And in those two months, it was just so depressing. It Pot didn't work anymore. I didn't get munchies anymore. I got more paranoid, and, and it just didn't work. It just didn't work. And it doesn't work. You're going to AA meetings and you're still smoking pot. You know what that does to your guilt? Um, oh, man. Um, I, I, um, and I held a job. I was a secretary of the group. And I'm smoking pot in AA. And um, it, it finally I had to surrender. And my sobriety date was August 29th, 1978. It was up in Hay uh, Hagerstown. It was up in Jessup on sick call, and I smoked two joints of pot. My buddy was getting out that day. This guy Joe, and um, nothing memorable other than I smoked these two joints of pot. And again, it didn't seem to work anymore for me. Two nights later, I went to a meeting at the Jude House down in Southern Maryland, and my sponsor. I had two sponsors, a male and female sponsor. Uh, my, male, my female sponsor liked to practice sort of a tough love approach to me sometimes. She backed me into a corner and really kind of gave it to me about why was I still smoking pot in AA? Why was I not really sober? And I had no answers, no defenses. And bottom line, it came to be, and if I didn't have a problem with pot, 
then why am I jeopardizing my parole hearing the following year? Why was I jeopardizing being on work release? Why was I jeopardizing the freedom of a lifestyle of being on work release and instead of being in the cut and Jesso? If I didn't have a problem, why couldn't I stop, at least until I got out? And I couldn't stop. I mean, that's what diseases of addiction is about. We could stop, but we couldn't stay stopped. I couldn't stay stopped. And the reason was, in big part, was because I was so afraid of the first word of the first step. It says we. I was terrified. I was terrified of you getting close to me. I was terrified, so afraid. I was thinking that about that today, too. What was my common theme in life? Fear. Always fear. Fear of you, fear of people, fear of God, fear of the unknown. It's always been fear. Just a self-centered, generated fear. It's always run through my life. And these 12 steps have been a way out of that. And that was the beginning of it, by surrendering to the first word, we, that I was going to let you help me by we, admit we're powerless over all mood-changing chemicals. Um, my life radically changed, but it was always... A, for the first couple months, I still had such strong urges to smoke pot. It was tough, and I was going to meetings, and, and in AA, um, some meetings weren't comfortable with you talking about that. Thank God for CDA, that we have a CDA program where you can talk about whatever you need to talk about. And, but back then, I was lucky, I guess, and I'm certainly grateful that those AA meetings tolerated me talking about my drug urges, even though I had stopped drinking uh, you know, six months before. Um, I had to really surrender. I watched Josh uh, sponsoring him. Uh, he, I don't know if he met, did you mention, he um been in the program a while and he had a relapse last year. And, and uh, watching him go through his process of coming off a relapse after a couple years um, has forced me and help, trying to help him to look at the first step. And I go to all the fellowships, first step, basic Texas, and really get an essence of what that first step's about. And it's about surrender. And I remember hearing that all the time in, the, in my first few months. you got to surrender the win. you got to surrender the win. I could not understand that, that paradox, that you had to surrender to win. And uh, I finally got it. Um, and part of that was I had to begin a process of prayer. And I had to begin to believe that there was a higher power and it wasn't me. And for a while it was my sponsors and then it was the group. I also read things like God is good orderly direction. And I began that process of what we call fake it till you make it. I really believe in that kind of stuff because it worked for me. In the work release bus to God don't have me drink or drug today. And at night I'd say, God or whoever, thank you for not having me drink or drug. And it worked because after some point I was doing it because it felt like it worked. And finally... My sponsor took me to Manresa, and I'll always be grateful for that. It's uh, where I met Brother Alexis. I was on a weekend pass in prison, and this was in, um, I guess, the weekend after um, Thanksgiving. I had a couple months, and I had an AA meeting that night on the Saturday night retreat, and it was on the third step. And I remember crying, and I remember somehow something happened. And I can't even to this day explain it other than something shifted inside of me in my heart space to where I was more willing and open to realize that, the, that God's will for me 
was more was certainly doing the next right thing, but it was also very much working the rest of the program, the rest of the steps. And it was a big shift in what happened. A couple weeks later, I had my last strong urge to use drugs. And I haven't had a strong urge since then. And what happened was I was at Jessup where I had last gotten high, and I thought if I get high, who's going to know? I had about four months, and I thought who's going to know is I'm going to know, God's going to know. But then what happened was I'd been sponsoring Alateen. I'd been going to this Alateen meeting, and then I was sponsoring it, again, as an inmate, but we'd go on work really uh, uh, minimum security out to these meetings, and I was sponsoring this Wednesday night meeting, and I thought if I use... I can't sponsor these kids anymore. I can't carry this message of recovery anymore. If I pick up, I can't do that anymore. And, a, and the urge went away. A day or two later, I was sharing that with somebody at a meeting, and they said, it looks like you finally love yourself enough. Because obviously you love those kids enough that you wanted a relationship with them to want to carry a message of recovery and try to help them. But it also seemed to say... You wanted recovery for yourself, that you deserved that. You were worthy of that. See, I mean, I came in this program with no self-esteem. This program has given me all my self-esteem. Uh, I really believe I grew up in this program. And I said this last night at the prison, too. We used to say this. It isn't, they use the word rehabilitate in the prison system, in the criminal justice system. And we used to say, and these guys related to this last night, it's not rehabilitate, it's habilitate. How do you give somebody, it's not a word, I've tried to look it up in the dictionary, but um, the idea that you could relearn something that you never had, how do you do that? This program, these 12 steps, give us tools to grow up, to come up with values and morals and, and, um, and character and a substance of a person that you can even define yourself. Before that, I was just this punky drug addict, uh, thief, criminal kind of person who was so bottled up with fear that it wouldn't show the world anything but just an outward appearance, but you were never going to see what was inside of me. And again, this program has radically changed all that. Um, I got out of prison. When I got out of prison, um, I went up for parole. I told you I said the, the serenity prayer 50 times. When I went up for parole the second time, I said the serenity prayer one time. I didn't have to beg God to get me out of prison. I didn't have to do that. I had finally enough faith and trust to say, God, whatever your will be, that's what it's going to be. And the parole officer actually said, we were going to flip a coin on whether to let you out or not. Because even though I had the sobriety, I, I still did some stupid things uh, um, that, almost, that jeopardized my parole. And they let me out into a halfway house. And... Um, and just, I was out a month and I spoke in a high school for the first time. That sparked something in me. Besides working with the Alateens, also speaking in this high school, it felt like I had some more self-esteem and worth to say, maybe I could help these kids in these school settings, like this prevention stuff. And then somebody suggested I go to school and go to college and go to counseling school, and I did all that stuff. And some of you, again, that know me a long time know that I ended up doing all that for years um, and um, and I have a, a lot of um, I just have a lot of fond memories of just my journey of recovery from the early days to the middle days to today and um, 
running out of time, but I, I'd just like to say that um, to give a little more balance to the issue of recovery, having a life today, um, my one sponsor, I called him today and he wasn't home. I talked to his wife um, and um, he used to always say, I approve of the way I live today. And I used to not be able to say that until I had about 10 years in the program. For 10 years in the program, I still had suffered a lot of depression and self-esteem issues and self-worth issues. It just took a long time and a lot of therapy and a lot of other 12-step meetings and a lot of work, a lot of work to finally feel like I was worthwhile and felt like um, I deserved to live. And again, I had 10 years in the program still suffering from depressions and suicidal tendencies. See, suicide seems to run in my family. And, um, and it's frightened me many times um, with my family members or myself. And again, this program, and, and what I love about this program too is that um, Jerry said this last year, CDA can stand for, can discuss anything. And CDA certainly has allowed me in the last couple years to freely talk about whatever I need to talk about in this recovery process. And, and I was, we were reading somewhere in CDA literature recently how, actually it was the 12th step, in our 12th step in CDA, in the pamphlet, supportive of other outside support things to enhance our journey of recovery, whatever that is. And um, I've certainly been one that's needed to do that and, and benefited from that, for sure. Um, also, to talk, just the first time I went to a CDA meeting, um, CDA was about a year old, and a guy named Randy J from Annapolis had me come and lead a meeting and Pam actually helped facilitate that, Pam R, that um, introduced me to Randy and, um, and I went and that was my first CDA meeting. And I love CDA right off the bat. Um, I used to say for a long time until now, for the last couple of years, but for a long time I was such an AA loyalist, loyalist program. But the reality is I've been able to allow myself to say CDA now is my program and has been for a couple of years now, uh, my main program. Um, and that actually came out of some really dark depression a couple of years ago. And actually, uh, basketball and, and, and Alan and Richard and Brent and some guys influenced me um, by just playing basketball with these CDA guys over in Greenbelt to come back to go into CDA on a more active basis. I always was a visitor to CDA for a lot of years because AA had been my base. And I used to come over to Greenbelt um, and play volleyball and the best and the baseball, softball, and all that kind of stuff with CDA. But I never felt like I was really in it. I was just around it, and I still had my AA base. But then, uh, again, three, four years, four years ago, um, I really surrendered to what CDA had to offer over there in Burtonsville. And um, and, it, and it's changed my life in all lots of ways. I'm back in doing service work like I never thought I would do. I used to think when Josh asked me to be his sponsor, I, I, I don't know, I know there's some guys in this room that, you know, when you get 10, 15 years, 20 years, I used to feel very inadequate to sponsor people that did crack when I never, crack wasn't around when I got clean. Um, 
the guys that were just wet and from out of detox. I felt very inadequate. How could I help them? I mean, I'd go to detox meetings, and we did that at Burtonsville at the Montgomery General, and I'd go to prisons and things like that. But I always felt inadequate. And, and Josh is actually, uh, I mean, I sponsor a lot of guys with five and 10 years and 15 years, and they're working quote unquote advanced steps. But the reality is, I need the basics of the first three steps in the service work that I do. I don't have to limit myself to thinking I can only carry a message to somebody who's already been in the program a while. I'm here to say, no matter how much you time you got in the program, we have a message to carry to every brand new comer in this program. And, um, and I've just gotten so many gifts from doing that with Josh in particular here since I've moved to Delaware. I guess I'd like to just end with saying um, about Delaware, I told people I was going to say this, and I don't know what the hell I'm going to say, other than that um, in our first tradition, it talks about our common welfare should come first, personal recovery depends upon CDA unity. And I'd just like to say that um, it seems to me that when I moved from Maryland to Delaware, I guess the biggest difference I saw in the recovery process was just this. Is, is that we're all different personalities, that D.C. is this high pace, one of the most powerful cities in the world with a certain social economic level and a certain educational level. And in, and in Delaware, and actually I got sober in Southern Maryland, it, Delaware reminds me of Southern Maryland. It's an agricultural community, and it has a different social economic thing, a different people's backgrounds. And so we have those differences, as I see it, but the reality is we're both we're still drug addicts. I mean, I get struck by, I mean, I travel, again, I go to AA meetings all over the place, around the country, and there's different West Coast, East Coast styles of meetings, but the bottom line is the essence that we're addicts, we're drug addicts, alcoholics that want to get sober, stay sober, and help each other. And I really, I guess I'll even take the risk of saying it, sometimes seems like there's this us against them, and I don't know what that's about, but I really hope that, that things like this, as Delaware has been more actively involved with the Serenity Weekend now, that we can continue to be, feel more of a unity together and celebrate our, our, our samenesses and, and as well as our differences, to celebrate that we're really together as addicts. And, um, and I think anybody that's traveled a little bit knows what I'm talking about here. Um, and I'm not saying any of this to offend anybody, but I just, I guess I suggest that I've inventoried myself in this situation many, many times. And again, I guess I just hope that there's a spirit of maybe some of a solution as to how geographically CDA can continue to grow and evolve. Because I was reading our, 12, our first tradition. In our big book, it talks about if we don't get along, if we don't grow together, we're going to expire. We need CDA. CDA doesn't need me. I need CDA. And in doing that, that means I need to do whatever service and whatever I can do to help that process. And so um, I just put that out there as something to think about, if nothing else. Or, or you might discount it. But um, it's something that I continually, I have to look at that. Because I go, I go to meetings still in PG County, and I still go to meetings in Delaware because I travel over there still a lot. And so it's something that's very dear to my heart and something that's, that, I, that I deal with. So anyway, um, 
I want to thank you guys for, for listening. Uh, I hope this, I, that some theme of this weekend and recovery can be about um, the joy of living and sobriety and recovery and especially about having a good time down here at the beach. And I want to thank Kevin and Gwen for asking me to speak. Thank you.